Hey, and welcome to a new episode of The Walk. I'm Father Roderick, about to cross this busy road here to get to the other side. It is a, uh, it's a chilly day. We're still in the middle of winter, although this is one of the least cold winters that I can remember in recent times. Probably just the earth warming up, but it's still, it's still cold. And especially since I lost my gloves on my latest run, um, I hope my, my hands will not freeze too much while holding this microphone. <laughs> Speaking of which, I've been training for my marathon. Um, I, I've uh, uh, registered for the Marathon of Rotterdam, which takes place on the 5th of April, which is actually on Palm Sunday. Now I, I will have Mass on Saturday evening. And then the next day, which happens to be my birthday as well, I hope to be able to run the Marathon of Rotterdam. I hope, because of two reasons, um, Actually, I, I, I was a little bit too late with my registration, so I'm currently on a waiting list. But I have, you know, I expect, I fully expect to be still part uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the race. There are always people that sign up and then get injured or whatever. Um, but the second reason that I'm, I hope to run it is that I started my training way too late. Um, I've been suffering from uh, a mild bronchitis for the f at least a few weeks around the new year, which prevented me from running. If you have you know, respiratory problems, then running is, is just not wise. That means in, that instead of 18 weeks uh, for my training, I only have 12, um, which means that I actually have to start my training on the level of where normally you'd, you'd already be uh, able to run a half marathon. Now, I, of course, I can. I have the advantage of having run and trained many years uh, for for races like this. But still, <laughs> I had quite a few blisters on my feet lately, and uh, it is very, very difficult to um, to get to that level because, you, well, you just miss uh, five weeks of training, and that is a lot. Uh, I hope to be able to run. So that, that first half marathon is scheduled on my, on my, on my uh, training, what you say, the, the overview of, of what I should run and when uh, is, is scheduled for this upcoming Sunday. And just yesterday I ran nine miles pretty easily. And then last Sunday I ran, what was it, 27 kilometers, 19 miles, I think, or 17, not 17 miles. Which was really hard. I couldn't, I couldn't finish it. So I'm not entirely certain that I will be able to run that marathon while being properly prepared. Of course, I can always run it, but I may not get to the finish line. <laughs> but I'm going to give it a try anyway. Uh, that is one of the, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm glad I'm doing again. It's just taking care of my overall fitness and uh, my health. And if you don't do that, and it's very easy to get tempted to just spend all my time on either working or recovering from work. But it feels good to invest in this marathon, even though training for a marathon is extremely time-consuming. I mean, we're talking like last Sunday. Normally on Sunday, it's the only day that I can relax a little bit. And... Uh, I've had a very busy week. Um, we had meetings almost every day. I have a couple of uh, difficult deadlines for a project, for a TV project, which I will talk about a little bit later. And so the entire Saturday I'd spent in meetings. The last one was a parish meeting, and it, it uh, ended at, uh, I think, around 11 o'clock or something like that. So Sunday I was pretty wiped out after three masses, and then I still had to run 17 miles. Uh, and I think in total I've been outside for about five hours. And then it's evening and the weekend is over. And I have not been able to rest. But, um, but I know that this is the right, this is the way. <laughs> as the Mandalorians would say. This is the only way to um, stay fit. To make sure that I don't fall ill. Because uh, there's nothing worse than, uh, than too much work. 
and not enough physical exercise. So um, the other thing <laughs> that I've been doing a lot is working. And before the Christmas break, I'd been working really hard to make sure that everything was uh, filmed for this next TV season because I wanted to free up time to adapt these documentaries for an international audience. And so uh, everything I film right now is always filmed in such a way that I can also make a, uh, another, another version of, the, of those stories in English. So, for instance, when we went to Scotland, every presentation, every uh, time I, I was on camera explaining something or commenting on something, I made sure that I did it both in Dutch and in English. But, of course, that's not the only ingredient for, uh, for an international production. You also need to translate all the voiceovers. And in case of Scotland, there was a lot of information in the voiceovers. So that needs to be translated from Dutch into English. Then I need to uh, record that. And then my editor has to make a new cut, basically, of the entire thing. Um, because, so, well, some of the material is different in the, in the English version from the Dutch one. So all in all, that's still quite a bit of work. Um, and so I wanted to really have the... Um, that's also the peace of mind to, to focus on that. Because this year, I think, for me, is going to be a very imp important year when it comes to branching out what I do uh, on an international level and, and uh, using the, the YouTube channels to grow the audience uh, considerably. And I'm already you know, I'm <laughs> making some progress and it's very encouraging but there's still a lot that needs to be done. Let me go to the left here. I'm on my way, by the way, in case you're wondering to get a haircut which I have to do <coughs> in the middle of my day. I'm actually been, I've been editing most of, the, of, of this morning and uh, so, but I, I need to get a haircut and I need to record the, the walk so that's why I'm outside right now. So this will probably be an episode in two parts, one with hair and the other one with slightly less hair, or actually a, with a lot, with even less hair than I already have. <laughs> but um, the so I had made a planning to film all the material, both the the uh, the let's say the travel series, but also some Dutch uh, reports or Dutch documentaries that I wanted to film, and. In three cases, things just didn't work out. That happens. Sometimes you plan something and then the person I wanted to interview or what I wanted to film, uh, those people are not available. And so I still had a couple of gaps in this new schedule for this next year. I didn't want to work during my uh, winter holiday, so I didn't. And I don't regret that at all. But uh, at the same time, it leaves me with... Um, a considerable gap actually in the total uh, schedule for this first half of the year um, and I, I juggled some stuff around and it ends up that I have to <laughs> somehow make six episodes of, this, of the 15 so that is a lot of work and I didn't want to and that was a deliberate choice I did not want to um, go out in the month of January and February to go film uh, documentaries in, in the Netherlands. It's really lousy weather. Um, but also, it's just... I feel that now that I'm focusing so much on the international stuff and on YouTube, I just don't want to go back to the, the kind of programs that I used to make in the past. Because it's... I don't know, it's not challenging enough. I, I really love these travel videos that I've been doing, these bigger stories with... A, a, more spiritual content I mean the Scotland episodes and you will see when we have the translated versions um, they're, they're pretty deep it's, it's, it's much much better than anything I've done before whereas if I do uh, a report in the Netherlands then it may be interesting for a small group of Catholics or uh, you know for instance one thing in the, that, that I was supposed to first film was this conference around a book that is written by uh, the Canadian priest James Malone. He wrote a book about uh, when I think it's called what, Divine Renovation. So it's about parish renewal. 
that book has been translated. It's been a massive success in the Netherlands, and there will be a conference in March, I think, toward the end of March. And about a thousand representatives from all sorts of parishes in the Netherlands and Belgium ha will, will show up. And so I figured, well, that is interesting. I could go and, uh, to some of those parishes and, and, and film a story about how they are trying to renew their parish. But then when I started to think about it, I was like, well, that is easier said than done. Because most of what these people do, uh, the, the book has been out for a couple of months. So in most cases, people are still just talking about what they're going to do. You won't be able to see the results yet. And, and even if there were already some things that, that, that they organize, I know it from my own parish life, um, it's, you're not, there are no activities for an entire day. So usually it's a, a, something in the beginning of the week and it's something during the weekend. So I was like, if, if I want to portray what's going on in these parishes, it will probably mean that I have to um, go there several times. And it's just production-wise very complicated and time-consuming. Uh, plus, also, it is in the middle of winter, so it's visually not very interesting to, uh, to film. It's, everything looks a bit drab and gray. So I like pretty pictures. I, I really like my, my sunshine and colors and none of that. And even the flowers. There are no flowers right now in the Netherlands. So it's just... I mean, it's, it's of course not the, not the core of, of the story that you're trying to tell, but it just felt so like, ugh, I don't want to do this. What else can I do to fill those seven episodes? And one of the things that I knew I wanted to edit is uh, footage that I shot during my uh, visit to Australia and New Zealand. And it's old footage. It's years old. <laughs> But... Um, It was really good, and I had some very interesting encounters, uh, went to great places. Um, so I felt, well, why don't I do an edit of that? And the same is true for my trip with my mom to, to China. Um, part of that trip has been on TV years and years and years ago. I didn't even edit it myself back then because I, well, I wasn't in that business yet. But they only took about 15 minutes of that footage, whereas I've been traveling for more than two weeks in China And it's fascinating material, also because it's personal. It's a, it's a you know, trip with, with, with my mom and has to do also with the family history. So I was like, well, I certainly have enough material for three episodes. So why don't I do that? I'll, I'll do a three-parter about Australia and New Zealand and a three-parter about China. And then I started to screen the material that I had filmed there. And um, for Australia, I noticed that I filmed that for vlogs, for probably, maybe for YouTube or for Facebook. I don't know. It's years and years ago. Um, so it's not bad. It's filmed with my old Sony camera. Back then that was considered to be a very good camera. Now that I'm working with my, you know, Canon cameras and better lenses and I have much more experience in filming, oosh, it kind of hurts my eyes from time to time. Not just the image quality, so you see a lot of lens aberration when I zoom in. And I am actually, I'm zooming in and out all the time, which is totally forbidden. And, oh, that, that looks like, you know, television from, from the 70s, you know, where they, they I, I, even in films, they, they would zoom in and out all the time. Uh, remember those old Doctor Who episodes where that happens a lot? And it doesn't look filmic at all. It looks very amateurish. So, and then I have, uh, I talk to the camera, but it's always in English. So, hmm, I'm not sure if, I, if this will work. And then the most difficult thing to tackle is there is no overall story. It's just a visit. And I went to talk on a number of, uh, of conferences. So that's all about church and new media. And now we would call it uh, church and social media. Some of it is still relevant. Other stuff is just very old-fashioned. And it's like, wow, yeah, eight years ago, that's how we talked about new media. So not everything is, is uh, usable right away. But at least, you know, it, it, there is a variety of images. There is a good travel story. And I, I just had this feeling, and it's more of an intuition, um, that with a good voiceover, I'd be able to turn this into a compelling story. 
and which actually has a beginning, a middle uh, part, and, and an ending. But that requires a lot of writing. So I didn't do any interviews about the situation in Australia or about church life in New Zealand. Um, fortunately, I have a lot of shots where either I'm sitting in a bus or later on New Zealand, I'm driving around on the su uh, southern island. So I think I have a lot of material that I could use for voiceovers. And then you kind of fill in, you, if you first write the story and then you use quotes. Um, for instance, right now I'm working on a, uh, the first part of episode one that's going to be from Adelaide. It's actually the last place that I visited on my way back home. But for the story, it works much better to start with that. So I begin my story in Adelaide. I get a tour um, by John uh, Middledorp. He's the father of Adrian Middledorp. Originally, that family is from the Netherlands, but they, uh, they settled in Australia. And he shows me around in Adelaide. And uh, I filmed him in the car while he was driving me around. Not, not even interviewing him. I was just filming from my, the window of the car. And in the background you hear him talk. Sometimes I film him. And there are these little snippets that are actually quite interesting. Because he's just you know, giving good information about the city and about life in Australia, etc. And uh, some personal details. So it's actually usable material um, when you want to... Uh, I, I, could, I, I think I could rework it in such a way that it looks as if I've been doing a, an interview on purpose, which was not the case. But it requires a lot of filling in the gap. So I, I contacted Adrian um, uh, just a few hours ago. I, for, was for, I totally had forgotten that there is this time difference between here and Sydney. And so <laughs> I think it was already almost midnight over there. But he, he filled in some of the details that I was missing in the story of his dad. And, and now I've been working on that story. And I'm going to splice in uh, the, the parts of the interview that I do have. And then another thing that I didn't film, but which actually was really intriguing, was what he told me about the renewal of parish life in Adelaide. So he said, um, Adelaide is actually one of the most secularized cities in Australia. Um, and parish life a couple of years ago was really not doing well. Until, at, a, at a, a certain point, um, some parishioners, or maybe it was a priest, I don't, I don't remember any, anymore, but they started to do Eucharistic adoration. So, for those of you that are not familiar with that Catholic tradition, it's, uh, uh, the Catholics believe that in Mass, the bread and the wine change into the body and blood of Christ, not just symbolically, but real, really. And so the hosts, the, so the, the pieces of bread, uh, which are now... Uh, changed into the body of Christ they are kept in the tabernacle and then sometimes they, they are exposed for veneration or adoration in a monstrance which is a kind of a, uh, an, an, an object with a it, with in the center a little glass holder for, for the um, uh, for the host and people will just pray there in the, in the presence of the adoration that is a, uh, a devotion that is centuries old. And so they started to do that in a parish that really didn't attract anyone anymore. And all of a sudden, people started to flock to those moments of adoration. And that led to a total renewal of that parish. Hundreds and hundreds of new parishioners and young people and an incredible vitality all of a sudden. And I filmed none of that. I did not... I didn't catch it on tape. And I vividly remember... Uh, that story, I did record like a, uh, a short summary of what he said while on the airport. So I said, well, I was just, you know, in my conversation with uh, John, he told me this and that about adoration. But none of that is usable because you want to hear it from him. You want to feel that he's telling you that while you're in the car with him. So that is, it requires a lot of creative editing to squeeze that in and to make it feel natural as if you know, you are there in that car and you hear about all these things. So it's, it's a big puzzle. It's, uh, it's quite a challenge to do it well. But I, th I just have a gut feeling that I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. And then from there, um, I think story-wise I will go to Sydney. That, that's actually where I started my journey. But it's, it makes much more sense to 
then go to Sydney because that's where, instead of going to explore the town, I immediately go and visit the, the local um, uh, university campus ministry. So it's a, a very Catholic story all of a sudden. And, and definitely, I, I feel so weird that if the story would start with Sydney, that we immediately go and only visit Catholic stuff. Whereas if I've already done the sightseeing in Adelaide, and then I kind of dispense with the pleasantries in Sydney and I go immediately to visit Cradio, which is Catholic radio, and, um, uh, and, and the, par- the student parish, that feels more natural and I can just insert a few you know, of the token images of the Bay of, uh, of Sydney and the Opera House. And then, you know, we've already had our tour of uh, part of, of Australia. So, and then, then after Sydney, that's where I will uh, travel to. That's when I will travel to Melbourne. That was also for a, a church new media conference. Um, so I have some interviews. I mean, I'm very, very glad, for instance, I was interviewing uh, Julius Porteus, I think, one of the bishops uh, and he had just been nominated, I think, or placed in Tasmania. Uh, but he was there, and ve- one of those bishops, like a bit like uh, Bishop Barron, um, who is very savvy when it comes to using new media to evangelize. And so I, had in- I interviewed him about it. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I hope I- he's still a bishop there. And, uh, and so I had to Google everyone who's in the video, to see, well, where are they now? <laughs> you don't want to have an interview. Like, well, and so I interviewed this and that priest. Oh, yeah, actually, he died five years ago. <laughs> you don't want to have that. So the, the uh, one problem that I encountered, because for, for my viewers, it's, it's really interesting how that works. But they don't notice, if you tell this story well, they will not notice that this was filmed eight years ago. You can't tell a little bit if you look at my hair, so I'm not as gray as I am right now, but still over all in all, I kind of still look more or less the same. Um, so that's not a problem. That's actually also a reason why I never wear glasses on camera, believe it or not. But it's also because it's a hassle to wear glasses when you have to work with cameras. But it is also because glasses get outdated. I mean, those of you that have glasses and you see photos sometimes uh, Facebook will show you photos from years ago and you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I'm wearing these glasses. Th- that was so 2010 or, you know, I would not dare to, to uh, go outside wearing glasses like that. But since I've always been on camera without glasses, um, it, it, the footage becomes more timeless. So uh, for the viewer who's going to watch this trip on TV, they will think... That it was last week. I'm not kidding you. That's how... Uh, for Scotland, I had the same thing. Like, my parishioners after Mass, they came to see me. And they said, uh, Hey, so, yeah, we can see that you've been outside in Scotland quite a bit because you've, you've got a, you know, a bronze color. You've, you, you can tell that, that, that you've been in nature. And I was like, well, um, actually, that was like three months ago. <laughs> really? I said, yeah, it takes a couple of weeks to put together one episode. And they, they couldn't believe it. For them, I had just been... Because they saw me on Tuesday in Scotland. And now it's Sunday. So, of course, that was last Tuesday. And, and so it's so funny how time perception works in, in media. Um, sometimes you can tell. Uh, if, if the footage is filmed with old equipment, for instance, uh, there's, there's one of these bigger vloggers, Casey Neistat, and he has a channel where he posts his old documentary, stuff that he filmed years ago, sometimes 10, 15 years ago. And you can totally tell that it's really old because the, just the, the whole... Um, there, there's something about the image, the, 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 the cameras that we were using back then. It's instantly recognizable. It's like when you see black and white, you know, that it's filmed decades ago. Well, sometimes with video, the, 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 the resolution, the, the look, the colors, even sometimes the movement... Uh, so the, it's like the shutter speed, etc. If it's all filmed with automatic cameras, then you can totally trace it. Your mind tells you this is old footage. But my footage was filmed with a resi- back then a very new camera. So it's all filmed in, in 25p, uh, which is industry standard in the Netherlands. Uh, the colors are it's a Sony camera, so the colors are very vibrant. It's just that it's, mm, it's not as sharp 
as I, I normally can do now. You don't have that same um, shallow depth of field that I can get with my newer cameras where the background is blurry. So everything is in focus. But if you don't know that, it does look as if it was filmed, well, maybe not yesterday, but definitely recently. But in the story, of course, I, need to, I also have to tell the truth. I can't say, well, a few months ago when I was in Australia, that would be fooling people. So I have to keep it very neutral. You know, I've been to Australia and there I meet so-and-so. So what I also had to do with Adrian Middeldorp, we went to visit the Blue Mountains. And I had to go and check if it's still there because of all the fires, of course. So I was really... If you, know, if you live in Australia and you see this documentary, then of course you realize that it was not filmed this year or last year. Because if you are in Melbourne now, for instance, or in Sydney, you'd have all the smog from the fires. But I can get away with that. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's just a few months. If the viewer gets the impression that it was filmed a few months ago, that's still feasible. But then I also have to work my way around the situation in Australia. Or sorry, in Sydney. Because in Sydney, when I was there, the cardinal who was there, the archbishop, was Cardinal Pell. This was way before the, the huge legal procedures uh, that he had to went to, which ended up uh, with him in jail. And so uh, that process is still ongoing. It also had a massive impact, I think, on the perception of the Catholic Church in Australian society. So both the, the internal situation of the Catholic Church, the place of the Catholic Church in, in Australian society, and the environmental situation have changed radically since I visited that country. And so, and I can't ignore it. I have to mention it. Uh, so that's where um, the footage from the, for instance, the official channel of the Archdiocese of, of Sydney is useful because uh, there is there are, they have some footage of the new bishop, or I mean he's been there for years. Um, so the successor to Cardinal Pell, and he recently d- uh, celebrated a mass in the cathedral for the firefighters. And so with that footage, I can bring people to the here and now, to the low, to the, to the current situation. But I don't really have to explain that the footage that I show from that mass is you know, eight years newer than the footage that I'm of the rest of the story. And so it, it requires a lot of... It's a balancing act to tell a story that is both informative, that is timeless, or a little bit timeless, includes both the old that I have on tape and the new um, that I have to kind of somehow squeeze in and fabricate a little bit. But it's fun. I really enjoy editing it. Um, of course... <laughs> seeing the wonderful landscapes and the beauty of of Australia and New Zealand makes me want to go back there with better cameras and maybe a drone or something like that but uh there are there are so many missed opportunities and even even in the uh storytelling in general I've become better and and I would have done my interviews completely differently you can tell that I had no experience that basically that I'm I, I was more of an audio person back then. This was at the height of my podcasting work. And so I'm filming the interviews as if I'm actually just recording a podcast. And uh, it, that doesn't always work on camera. But all in all, it's, it's a lot of fun to, uh, to be working on, on this material. because, And that's also... Uh, both audio have that, has that and video... If you listen to a podcast that I recorded years ago, it still feels as if it's yesterday or now even. If you if you are listening to this particular podcast, The Walk, there's nothing in your brain that tells you that this is not happening live. You feel like it's right now that I'm talking to you, right? And But this actually happened yesterday or a couple of hours ago if you're one of the earlier downloaders. Or maybe this was two or three weeks ago and you only now pressed the button on your phone or whatever. And, and you're only now listening to it. So there's an immediacy when it comes to audio. Audio maybe even more than video. 
Uh, but but also video, as as long as it's been filmed like in the last five or six years, or in my, this case, it's eight years ago, you'll still accept it. And it's because cameras that people use right now, including the cameras on their phones, they have comparable vi video quality to the stuff that I filmed back then with that Sony camera that I paid uh, 3,000 euros for. <laughs> oh my goodness, that was so expensive. And now it, it, this is considered to be, you know, amateur level camera. <laughs> but that is why I think I can get away with it. And the same is true for, for China. It was filmed with the same camera and it, it's, it's filmed better. Um, and thankfully, I recorded myself in Dutch, which now makes it harder to <laughs> adapt it for an international audience. And so for English, I'll have to subtitle stuff or maybe do voiceovers or I don't know. But anyway, for China, for my Dutch TV show, it's going to be easier. Um, but for the for for um, uh, for Australia and New Zealand, it is a bit more of a puzzle. But I'll uh, I'll figure it out. Hey, I am here at my hairdresser, so I'm going to get a haircut, and I'll rejoin you when that is done, which in your timeline is going to be like five seconds from now. See you in five seconds. And. I'm back, as if nothing happened <laughs> for you, just three seconds, for me, about 15 minutes. This was a very fast uh, haircut, actually. Um, and I met Karim, who is now the new owner of this uh, hairdresser. I've been a client of, the, of his predecessor for as long as I live here in the city. And uh, he was from Syria. This new owner is also from Syria. Um, but the previous owner actually hadn't been in hairdressing uh, all of, all of his life. He actually had a much higher degree. Um, he was a metal expert. Uh, expert, And so um, he, like many other people from, from Syria and Iraq, started uh, a, a salon, a hairdresser salon, so he could provide for his family. But he didn't really like the work. And uh, there was a lot of stress and not much. He, he just couldn't be himself. Uh, he felt that, you know, I, I, I want to work with metal. And so in, in the end... With his savings, and he's been telling me this story for years. Um, with his savings, he bought himself uh, a van, and now he's traveling part of the country to uh, sharpen both uh, cutlery, but also industrial machines, etc. Because he knows everything about metal, and uh, apparently that is a specialism that is pretty rare. So he said goodbye to uh, his career as a hairdresser. And sold his business to this new owner, Karim, uh, who has always been in uh, the business of hairdressing. So he's been uh, working in Syria. He's only been here for four years, which surprised me because he, he speaks Dutch very well. Very kind uh, man. And uh, so he took over, but he had already, he had his own hair salon in, uh, in Syria. So he's got five kids here and uh, his wife. And... Uh, And it's, it's, oh, it's fun to immediately continue the conversation because in, by going to the same hairdresser for so long, I know a lot about the situation in Syria. And so if he t tells me about this and that, and I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember that. And um, it's, it's funny for me to, because it's not normally, um, I, don't, I don't have that many people in my own circle of friends that uh, are from that part of the world. I do have a couple of parishioners from Iraq and maybe one or two from Syria. But um, but it's it's so cool to have followed the lives. That's what I love about these, these guys. They're very uh, open, uh, always have great conversations because you're sitting there and, well, what are you going to talk about? Soccer? I don't care about that. So I usually just ask about where they're from and what their life looked like in Syria and why they came here and how the family is now. And so immediately you, you build up a bond. And uh, so he was like, uh, oh, I hope you'll, you'll stay a customer <laughs> now that I'm running the business here. <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure, no, no, no worries. And then the, uh, there was another guy, uh, also from the Middle East, um, but a, a totally different part, I think. I, I'm not sure what ethnicity he is, but speaks Arabic as well. And he was like, I've seen you on TV. And you were talking to this monk from Romania. I was like, yeah, that was last week. That was in, in Scotland. <laughs> so then the, 
owner, Karim, he was like, oh, well, can you do like a, a TV show about uh, Syria? And then you can come film here. And then uh, you, you show the brand because I have a new name so, for, for the business. I was like, well, it's public TV, so I'm not allowed to do commercial activities. Actually, it is to the point that when I was in, in Sydney, I went to McDonald's, not for the food, but for the Wi-Fi, because, uh, well, internet is actually quite... I'm not sure if it's still the case, but eight years ago, it was very hard to get public Wi-Fi anywhere. And McDonald's was one of those places where, where they would offer unlimited Wi-Fi, as long as you stayed in a restaurant. So I filmed that, and it's one of those few images that I have of downtown Sydney, so I wanted to reuse it, but... I have to blur and mirror all the scenes where you see McDonald's logo. And of course, you still see the M and everybody knows it's McDonald's. But because of the strict rules about, you know, not having commercial uh, brands in your, uh, in your video, I had to blur it out. So that was a little bit disappointing for him. <laughs> At the same time, I'm thinking, you know, th that guy, those both he and his predecessor have an amazing story and you could totally do a documentary about these refugees from Syria about their previous life and their life here in the Netherlands and how they're building up their family and taking care of uh, growing a business etc I mean these guys have great stories to tell but well they're both Muslims so I'm not sure if I can do that for Catholic TV <laughs> I mean I could but I need to find like a Catholic angle. But it's such a shame that in the Netherlands uh, we have, uh, let's say, television program programs even for you know smaller minorities. Um, like there is a Buddhist uh, broadcasting entity. I'm not, I think they're they're kind of uh, they they work with a bigger uh, broad, one of the bigger broadcasting channels. But they get uh, some time allotted every week on television. You have that for the Jewish community. We also very limited. Lots and lots of different Protestant denominations that have their airtime. Catholic Church has airtime, but it's also considered to be a minority now. But for the Muslims, there's almost nothing. And I, from what I've heard, it's because of the fragmentation of the Muslim community itself. You have uh, a, a pretty, I think the majority of Muslims, like the Muslim community has been here for, let's say, a generation, mostly is from Morocco and uh, Turkey. And the Turkish group is much more, uh, is richer, has more facilities. So they have the bigger mosques, etc. I'm not sure about numbers, if they're bigger too. Then you, so then you have Morocco. And then recently you've got way more refugees from Syria and Iraq and uh, Middle East countries where there was war. Um, and and then of course within uh, Islam you have a lot of different uh, flavors, <laughs> you know the, the the different groups and and sometimes totally radically opposed spirituality. Um, so it's very hard to to um, find a common denominator for uh, for the Muslim community, which is still considerable in my country. And I believe that it's so important to tell these stories to get to know what's going on in the Muslim community and to to tell stories that help people understand that yes we may have different beliefs different cultural background but on all the other levels we're so much the same and uh, the, the people that I know from Iraq and Syria are so likable and kind and, and often very critical towards what's going on in their own countries and uh, but they, they can't tell their story it's invisible and that's why you get a lot of prejudices and, and fear because people are afraid the only thing the only time that they see uh, and they hear about the Muslim community is when there is a you know something that extremists do etc or like <laughs> I, I guess that most people don't have a clue about uh, about the way in which modern Muslims live their faith and what that means and how that what how that impacts their choices. I would like to know that, and it's comparable, and I can empathize with the situation because, let's be honest, for Catholics it's almost the same right now. 
the only time that the majority of the people hear about Catholics is when there is a scandal. When, you know, Cardinal Pell has to go to prison. Uh, when there is a, uh, like a, a war of words going on in the Vatican. And, and there is, a, you know, Pope Benedict versus Pope Francis, etc. That kind of stuff. But you never, well, almost never see what the Catholic community actually does and what they believe and how they live let alone, you know, the, the more sophisticated information like, okay, well, well what, is, what is the liturgical life, uh, the prayer life, the tradition of Catholics? That is one of the reasons that I'm so glad that I'm still on te- television and I can travel the world to show at least the people in my country and hopefully this year also uh, the you know, audiences on YouTube, the, this, the, the let's say, the... The scope, I would say, of, of, of the Catholic world, of the Catholic culture, and, and uh, the history and how much uh, of that history is part of our common history in Europe, in, in the U.S., in, in Canada, everywhere. And there is only one way, I think, to get that across, and that is by just by show and tell. It's, it's not enough to... Um, to write articles or blogs because we live in a very visual world. And the best stories are the personal stories from a personal perspective. That is why uh, I like that, that style, the vlogging style so much because it taught me to apply that same uh, style to, to the world of television. And, and it's so funny when I first arrived um, in the world of TV, in Dutch traditional TV making... Almost every program was imper- impersonal. So you, you would have lots of documentaries, beautifully filmed and everything, but you would hear this disembodied voiceover, and you didn't know who, that, who, who made the program. Um, it was filmed very objectively, at least seemingly objectively. And the only personalized media that you saw was like the news with anchors, uh, presenters, but... That personal style of what you now is very much the the trend on Netflix, for instance, where you know this celebrity chef takes you on a trip through you know the wildlands and uh, we're going to taste everything and and it's very much from the perspective of that one person and that makes it so much more interesting to watch. And I would like to do the same for uh, for Catholic TV for. Christian TV in general show that it doesn't always have to be either um, a liturgical celebration, um, which is very static, or a boring interview with a, a, a bishop or something like that, or a theologian. Um, but that it is an adventurous world, and you can travel and 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 have experiences, and and what you film and the people you talk to impact the person who is filming and interviewing. And that it, it's it's um, one of the examples that I often use when I talk about this is uh, the the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. Now I'm not a super fan of that movie, but what struck me while I was watching it was that the actual physical suffering um, of Jesus in that movie, the way it is portrayed, very gruesome, very bloody, um, doesn't have much emotional impact. Or the only emotional emotion that it provokes is horror. It's like, oh my gosh, what a blood. Oh, it is so terrible. But the moment that I choked up was not when I saw this actor playing Jesus, but it was when I saw the actress who played the Virgin Mary. And she is in tears. And that broke my heart. And that's when I started to cry. So it's by empathy. It's, it's a reaction. It's her reaction to the suffering that made me engaged. And I've noticed that with vlogs, that is the secret to good vlogging. It's not, the, it's not just the contents. It's not just the information or, I don't know, the, the, the movies that are reviewed or the review as such, but it is the personality. It's the reaction of the person that reviews or watches something. Why are, what is it, 20,000 people sharing and watching my reaction to uh, the, the promo for season 7 of The Clone Wars. 
which I actually am not qualified at all to react to because I've only seen two seasons right now of The Clone Wars. But I knew that if I would film myself watching that seventh, uh, seventh season trailer, that people would, would share that. It would go viral, which it always does without exception. And it's, because, it's not because I'm the only person in the world who came up with the idea of filming myself while watching that trailer. But it's because it's this priest who is so enthusiastic, who has a certain, I don't know, um, radiates uh, uh, love for Star Wars. And that's what people want to see. So it's not about Star Wars. It's actually about me reacting to Star Wars. And that is... Uh, how do I get uh, in this rabbit hole? <laughs> I don't know. But it's a style... Uh, that was not very common on television. And with my program, I think um, that is why I've, I have a very loyal following and the program after 10 years is still doing very well and may actually grow in the future. So uh, the, uh, one of the other Catholic programs on Dutch TV is uh, it's called Cross, Crossroads in English, Kuispens in, in, uh, in Dutch. And it is not personalized so it's I mean it's very good television they've got a good crew um, but one episode may be made by usually they have external people that make it for them and it may be about a hospital etc and then it's very well done beautifully filmed good interviews good message as well but the next week it's filmed by someone totally different um, you never get to see the presenter in the actual episodes So I, one of my colleagues is is the presenter of that program, but you only see him five, six seconds at the beginning and five, six seconds at the end, and then he does the voiceovers. Now, perhaps that is enough for that style, but it feels... I don't have the same bond with that program, even though it's been on TV for, I don't know, 30 years. But But most of the vloggers that I follow on YouTube... I feel that I have much stronger personal connection and I'm much more emotionally engaged with them, with their vlogs, uh, than, than with that TV show. And I think it is because in the vlogs you see a person, a real person, and you see, hopefully, real reactions to things. That is what makes it so interesting. You can kind of put yourself in the, in the skin. I'm not sure if that's the right expression, but you put yourself in... You look at the world through the eyes of someone else. And that what, that's what makes it so compelling. If I go to Australia and New Zealand, there are literally hundreds of documentaries that are filmed beautifully about Australia and New Zealand. There's nothing in my documentary that will be different from that content. But what makes it uh, different is that I am in that story. I'm part of that story. You see me in a Jeep going to a film location for The Lord of the Rings and uh, we're, I'm standing in the same river that, uh, uh, that Frodo crossed uh, in, with the, the Dark Riders in pursuit and I'm standing there and I'm reacting to it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm standing here. And that is what, what makes it an emotional moment if I had just done like uh, with, uh, I don't know, David Attenborough in the background doing the voiceovers for my YouTube channel. If only uh, the beautiful river. Oh. And you would just see beautiful images of that river. It would have the, the, the same emotional impact as, you know, my shaky camera type of reaction. Where it's like, oh my gosh, I am in Middle Earth. <laughs> so that is, I guess that's also why you're listening to this. It's, you know, the content, the information that I convey is not that interesting. Well, maybe it is to you, but it's it's nothing you know shocking or or um, newsworthy. But it's a it's a personal conversation, and that's what we all crave. It's a personal bond. It's friendship in a certain way as well. All right, I'm almost home. That's a good thing because it started to rain or drizzle. We had a bit of sunshine this morning, but uh, that's all over now. Oh, I can't believe... I mean, imagine that I had to film in this kind of weather. If you are in standing in this drizzle with your camera, you know, in 15 minutes you're drenched. Because it's this steady, 
flow of water and it seeps into all your equipment. It's one of the reasons that I don't want to film in the winter time. It's a disaster for light. The weather conditions are unpredictable. <laughs> My ideal job would be to film in Europe in the summertime, springtime, summertime. And in the winter, I'd film in New Zealand and Australia and Japan and you know all those countries that are living on the opposite side of the planet and in the southern hemisphere. Because then I would always have springtime or summertime. Although I'm not sure if I would like to film in the summertime in Australia because of the temperatures now and, of course, the environmental crisis with all the fires there. But, um, but I'm definitely not a winter person, nor will I ever be. I mean, with ex an exception, of course, is the, the Christmas holiday. I like that. But then you have that long stretch. And what makes it even more depressing is that, of course, in the liturgical calendar of the Catholic Church, very soon we will start Lent. And that is a long time. That's 40 days of, you know, a sober life. And, it, and then the, it, it also depends on when, Chris, when Easter is celebrated. Sometimes Lent starts like right after Christmas. At least in my... It feels like it's right after Christmas. And then you have to live that, that period of Lent where you hear stories... That makes it even worse about, you know, Moses in the desert and the sun is shining and people are hot and they are thirsty. And we're, we're reading that in, in the gloomy, dark days of February where it's raining and storming. And it actually starts to rain really hard now. I gotta, I'd better speed up a little bit. And it makes Lent always extra gloomy. I wonder what Lent feels like in, in New Zealand or in Australia. It must be a very different vibe i think but then again it's like christmas where you know they're barbecuing on christmas eve <laughs> that's something i will never wrap my my mind around okay let's cross the road here oh yeah yeah okay almost home then i'm going to put these two pieces of the episode together and then inga will post it online for you to enjoy so thank you so much for listening and uh uh, well, you know how to follow me. You know how to support me. Patreon.com slash Father Roderick. Keep an eye on my YouTube channel. Good things are coming. All right. I'll be back. Talk to you soon. Take care.